my name is the Badger Dad, uh, and you're about to watch uh, episode 10 of The Orthodox Show. And I wanted to include something that I actually omitted to do during the recording, which was uh, read the bio, pardon me, for, for my guest, uh, Sergio. So uh, he goes by Serge, though, and he is the uh, proprietor of Theosis Plus, um, which you can find on Instagram and at his blog at theosisplus.wixsite.com. Um, Sergio has a bachelor's of economics with a minor in political philosophy. He loves exploring the relationship between man and God by studying the theology of the fathers of Alexandria, combined with existential Thomism and Nouvelle Theologie, his hope is to further develop his academic career by eventually pursuing doctoral studies in theology, but specializing in Greek theology. The theologians that have shaped him the most are Origin of Alexandria, St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Father Henri de Lubac, Father Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Pope Benedict XVI. He considers himself a Catholic that the, with a theological background and emphasis rooted in Joanite theology and Second Temple Judaism. Currently, he is exploring the relationship of mystic Jew, Jewish eschatology and Byzantine and Latin eschatology, as well, as well as exploring the relationship of Islam with Gnosticism and Arianism. So you can go support uh, um, Serge on all the different uh, social media that he has going on with Theosis+. Plus. And thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Thank you so much for coming on today, Serge. Uh, my name's the Badger Dad, Lyndon, and this is the Orthodox Show. Um, today, uh, we're going to be taking on, um, it was more recent, it's less recent now, but still relevant, a um, motu proprio by, issued by our uh, Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, called Spiritus Domini, on uh, updating uh, the canon law to permit um, the ministries of acolyte and reader to be uh, officially given to, to women, and uh, looking at what that means uh, from a Byzantine perspective, an Eastern perspective. So, uh, to begin, let's, uh, let's pray. And, um, as, uh, recently, um, our Pope Emeritus, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, Joseph Ratzinger just celebrated his 94th birthday. Uh, we'll offer this, the intention of these prayers for, um, Pope Benedict XVI. So in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit, amen. In the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Danos hoy el pan de cada día, y perdona nuestras ofensas, así como también nosotros perdonamos que nos ofenden. Libranos de todo mal, y llévanos al cielo. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, offering the second half in, in uh, Spanish there, Serge. I appreciate that. Uh, we always try to be 
uh, I think I think it's also it's interesting too. There's um, a lot of people don't know about um, how in the states, uh, like where where you're. I'm I'm from Canada, but I know in the in the states, especially in the uh, Byzantine Catholic Church of America, there is a, a large now growing movement of um, um, Latino uh, people joining churches or at least attending there. If there's no um, you know Roman Catholic uh, uh, service in their area, and so I know a lot a lot more priests, Father. I think Michael Laughlin with um, was it O'Laughlin or Laughlin with uh, O'Laughlin? I think so. Yeah, with the Eparchy of uh, Phoenix. I know he does. I think he does uh, ministry in Spanish too. So it's... well, yeah. You know, there was also the large uh, amount of Argentine and Ukrainian Catholics that during the USSR era were able to flee to South America. Mm-hmm. There's also in Brazil, but Brazil speaks Portuguese, so they're not considered uh, Hispanic, just Latinos. Right. But it's quite interesting. Yeah, Father Hugo. Um, which is in the Ukrainian eparchy of San Nicolas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was talking to him the other day. He's Argentinian, uh, oh, really? Ukrainian, mm-hmm. and he actually offers a divine liturgy in Spanish because there's a growing amount of Latinos interested in the divine lit- liturgy in their language. Uh, Mexico, as of right now, has a Melkite church and a routine church it's a really small but growing movement and part of the reason that this has occurred is because of the 1969 changes in the Roman Messiah a lot of people were left without a spiritual home in reality and in many areas especially in the United States uh, the Byzantine churches have for some people serve as a new home Mm -hmm. to welcome them and to learn a new way of life and prayer but still connected to God absolutely and so I think that's um that's something that we can kind of maybe start off with on the discussion here with um, like from the Byzantine perspective, like I think a lot of people maybe from the Roman or the like the Western church can kind of see Byzantium, the Eastern churches as being very nationalistic, almost ethnistic, ethnistic in the sense, you know, you've got all these different Byzantine churches, but separated, you know, seemingly only by, the the borders of country and 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 the barriers of ethnicity and you know in the reality when you go into a lot of these parishes I know even in a slightly different context but even in my city amongst the Orthodox churches there's a growing number of um, Ethiopian and Eritrean people coming coming to um, coming to our city and they go to the ortho the Ukrainian Orthodox churches they're just like this is orthodox churches you know it's our it's our tradition too and they're receiving communion they're they're integrating into the parish life you know it's the the east is you know just as diverse as as the west you know and i think that's something that maybe a lot of people aren't aren't aware of and speaking of diversity that's sort of the the topic of of today's discussion and you know i know that you can i don't i don't want this discussion to be to seem you know, patronistic to seem misogynistic or anything like that. I think what I'd like to really get into are what are the facts, what are the traditions, what are, what what constitutes authentic tradition, authentic development, and how that all plays into um, to our church. So, um, Serge, did you want to kind of start off on what is the the maybe summarize if you can or if you would uh, what what the motu proprio did and um, kind of maybe then that maybe could just uh, lead into uh, your discussion of 
that same topic from a, from our business uh, Byzantine perspective, if you would. Yeah, definitely. And as as well as you remember in the chat, I'm also going to be jumping in and speaking in favor of Deaconesses from both the Armenian and the Byzantine traditions. I think it's going to give it a truly universal and early church kind of feeling and arguments that happened back then. Mm -hmm. But the most appropriate that we are talking is Spiritus Domini from Papa Francesco. And uh, what it is, is this modified Canon 230 on the mother of women serving as acolytes and lectors on the altar. Before this, uh, many dioceses already had it because it was up to the bishop to choose. What Pope Francis did is just formally change it from the bishop having the power to choose to allowing it worldwide. Meaning that in technicality, it's still up to the bishop because it's his own diocese, but now he doesn't have to permit it or dispermit it or allow it or not allow it. Now it's allow it. It's more on the matter what comes into the ministry and what comes into the formation. Um, some of the matter of it is that I actually was thinking, the, at least in a Western perspective, uh, when we talk of acolytes and lectors, we're not talking anymore of minor orders in reality because the West has removed the minor orders. So what we are talking at this point, it's more of a confitment of ministry. And this is why I wanted to talk about deaconesses extremely in this part, because the Greek word for deaconesses is diakonos, which is in the ministry. So in reality, the lectors and the acolyte, now women serving, is an extension of in the ministry, understanding the early church had on the topic. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, th thanks for that, um, Serge. Um yeah, so I think one one thing one thing to note first off the bat is that the modu proprio itself um, is is a um, sort of a juridical text changing uh, Western right canon law. So that's that's something first to to sort of note is that so whereas the the modu proprio itself doesn't directly impact um, Byzantine churches or the Byzantine uh, the Code of Eastern Canons. Um, it certainly um, um, it certainly speaks to it as as does any action of the of the universal pontiff. Um, so yeah, I think um, one one thing I'd like to maybe start um, uh, the discussion off with is um, so just in in looking at uh, the entry from the um, original Catholic Encyclopedia, and I think this is the one circa circa 1912 yeah the first revision was 1912 and the article was is by uh herbert thurston one thing that he notes in the discussion of uh deaconesses and he's citing here let me find the the reference here he's citing the uh didascalia apostolorum and the apostolic constitutions um and specifically he's got here um apostolic constitutions um, chapter 8, 27, that um, regarding the function of deaconesses. So, because I know the, the discussion today is going to be about deaconesses. So, one thing I, I, I wanted to sort of maybe put to you for your response, Serge, is um, uh, with Thurston quotes that the deaconess gives no blessing and she fulfills no function of the priest or deacon. And that's where he ends the quote. So I don't have the that original text there with me, but would it be fair to say, um, from your point of view, that the deaconesses had a um, liturgical ministry, which was um, 
equivalent or similar to even that of the of the um, deacon as we as we understand it. I actually will say yes, and the matter of why I'm actually going that hard on the on this perspective is because the blessing that the deaconesses were given uh, both talk about an ordination, and it is not in the same methodology and linguistic as as the male deacon. It is. Uh, it speaks more of a lesser level of kind of more of a blessing, but it does speak of filling them with the Holy Spirit. Traditionally speaking, the methodology in which the ministry of the deaconesses were carried was very different per area. And I will point out, deaconesses never actually existed in the West. It was actually the Council of Nismel prohibited any woman for ministry. And then the Orange Canon 26 prohibited the ordination of any met, of any type of woman in the Western church. So uh, I will actually go forward and admit that was the case. But when it comes to the East, it's up to the years uh, 1070 on Constantinople, the deaconesses had technically ceased to exist within the Greek region, but their job was being carried by nuns. And uh, you see a lot of this job uh, liturgically still exists in some women monasteries in which the mothers actually read uh, the epistles or they held the priest by entering the altar through the side doors. So we do see some organic development of what the deaconess was within her originally right of job. Mm-hmm. It's not a job, a vocation. Probably should be a better word that it's still into effect in modern world. And when we look up on that, it's that it starts as a way to help in the ministry through the baptism and the chrismation of women, mm-hmm. since it was inappropriate for a male deacon to apply the holy oils in the personal parts of a woman. Because as people might not be aware, I was going to say as people were aware, but that's why we're talking. So you can, yeah, as people are not aware, uh, you cannot have to be put oil in your private adult areas when you were baptized and chrismated. Um, so that could have been a problem for a lot of deacons, especially within the historical effort that we have in Greece, in Greek culture of trying to combat the degeneracy of the pagan era. Right, right. Yeah, and no, I think I think you make a, you make a good point there, Serge. So, like, there's definitely, you know, we've we've got we've got two primary things I think interacting here. We've we've got the liturgical aspect, and then we also have the cultural aspect, right? So, you know, whereas, you know, historically. Uh, you know, the and maybe in one okay, let's let's say one form of the deaconess ministry, as it were. You know, it was specifically with the baptism chrismation, as you're as you're talking about with of of um, adult female uh, catechumens neophyte like when they are entering into the church, and you know that's sort of you know in our modern we can think of it in our modern context though you know we don't have the same sort of baptistry we don't have the same sort of physical ritual in many places you know i i I even know in there are byzantine uh jurisdictions that um even for infants are no longer doing the immersion total immersion uh, the georgian orthodox church is a great example of even non-catholic churches not doing it many times yeah and so so now now that we're sort of maybe even in a more pragmatic sense you know no longer observing that same level of you know stripping off the old man stripping off all your clothes entering physically into the baptistry you know it seems that at least that aspect of what you could say was the 
you know, uh, deaconess ministry in antiquity is sort of, you know, defunct in most Western kind of climates. But um, yeah, no, I wanted I wanted to to sort of comment that. Um, yeah, you you are correct. I'm, my understanding is I don't know of any Byzantine Catholic um, women's monasteries where that practice is is currently being done. I, I um, the only references that I've been able to find are of Orthodox. So, but again, in a Byzantine context, of Orthodox women's monasteries having that presence of the especially the abbess, the um, uh, hegumena, being having that sort of more liturgical role. And I think that's, that's the one that was sort of going to lead into my next, my next question for you, Serge, is, um, you know, the the developing nature of liturgical praxis, you know, it can change what what exactly constitutes a specifically liturgical ministry, I, I, I think, you know, case in point, you've already mentioned the um, update to the, um, to the Latin, right, the Novus Ordo Messe, and how, you know, the a lot of the different things that were like that were considered to be the proper liturgical function of you know the subdeacon you know in terms of reading the epistle were completely changed and validly done so some would argue not fittingly <laughs> some some and still others argue not licitly but that's that's another discussion but there was a change in the corporate practice of these liturgical functions in the Western Rite. So I, I'm willing to admit that there are developments in terms of what a liturgical function of a, let's say, an ordained minister specifically looks like. Um, and so that's where you see in those uh, women's monasteries, the uh, hegumena or maybe a senior um, uh, nun um, actually like preaching the, the epistle, right, rather than an ordained tonsured male reader. Um, who would normally be the be the person for that? But I, again, I also know in in practice, lots of Orthodox churches in in my jurisdiction too, uh, around my area, where women, uh, uh, you know, chant chant the epistle as well. So there's, you know, we we're running into the you know what is, you know, sort of liturgical canon, and then what is the the practice amongst the right? But again, custom amongst the people, which in some sense has a has a juridic weight to it but that's that's kind of debated it's it's uh you know that that's where you draw the line between what's what's novelty what's abuse and then what's organic authentic development in, in in liturgical practice so um would you say that um uh like today that this is sort of a uh uh are you still there i am i think it froze so for a second okay sorry okay we're back so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put a bit of more of a finer point on that. I think I was rambling a bit there, Serge. So, so you've mentioned that uh, there are in the Byzantine and specifically also the Armenian, there are women who are doing liturgical functions. Um, in Armenia, we might have in some, some cases, uh, deaconesses. In Byzantine, properly speaking, there, there are uh, nuns who are, have some liturgical roles that they fulfill too so would you say that this is a sign given pope francis's recent modo proprio that that's a direction that you see the liturgy going is to opening up those those sorts of um liturgical practices okay uh we'll be honest i don't think pope francis 
and the Roman Catholic clergy, and by that I mean the Western church, it's looking at the Orthodox church as a matter of orthopraxis. And I will use orthopraxis in a little bit narrow and not narrow, more wide and between quotation sites, because what's orthopraxis is also going to be another kind of long discussion. But nevertheless, I think they're mostly doing it, looking at Western culture, trying to combat this need that a lot of women have that they feel they're not welcome in church okay. because they cannot be priests or deacons. I think right. that's what's going on. I, as, as a furtherance of the matter, while I can connect it to the end of the existence of deaconesses to defend the position in which that changes have occurred, mm-hmm. I think that I'm also out to be honest and not uh, tell a lie of Pope Francis and the Western church are looking beyond the West because that will be something of uncommon precedence if we are to be honest on this issue. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's fair. And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, I, I can really, I can really feel, again, I, I can really empathize with people who maybe feel uh, unwelcome. I know that there has been even parishes where the liturgy was again in, in a Byzantine context where the liturgy was, was fantastic. There was, um, you know, always a decent choir. The priest had a good voice, but you know, there were pastoral things going on where I didn't feel welcome, you know, so I can, I can, if there are people who are experiencing the liturgical life of their church and not feeling welcome, not feeling engaged, I can, I can definitely empathize with that. I think though, for me, some of this comes back to a lack of, of um, sort of grounded formation for clergy and then um, by extension for laity. I think that there needs to be a renewal of, I think, and, you know, I think um, uh, speaking of Pope Benedict, he, he spoke of this in the, in his encyclical on the, on, um, on the, I think it was on the Eucharist. I might, I might be confusing him with the, with um uh, St. John Paul II's encyclical, but there's been so much sort of papal encyclicals on this in the last, you know, um, generation about getting back to understanding the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith and really uh, re-engaging people's minds and intellects and souls in the liturgical act of worship itself. And I think that in my experience growing up too, I, I went, I was, um, canonically uh, Latin before I changed my ascription. And, you know, I think that there, there's a lot of people who just aren't really well formed in, in connecting themselves personally to the, to the sacrifice being offered at the mass to really having an intentional communion with Christ in, in, in receiving Holy communion. And I think that, you know, that's where I would like to see um, this renewal start if we're going to be talking about you know what what can we what can we do validly what can we do illicitly to change praxis to engage people who are disengaged I think a better discussion would be what can we do in our te- in the teaching office of the church to really re-engage people in what what worship is and actually uh, our commandant uh, Robert Taft um, a great uh, liturgical historian he has a um, I think it was uh, Eastern Christian Publications put out his last book just after he, he um, reposed in the Lord. And it was entitled, Worship is What Liturgy Does. 
and that was uh, it's a it's a collection of essays on on some of these these topics and i think that that's that's kind of where i want to see you know per personally i i think that that would be a more um life-giving uh, path forward in this area is that if we can really re-engage people on the topic of what liturgy is then i think some at least in my opinion some of those people might might start to say well maybe i don't have to have a liturgical function but i know that my active participation isn't you know reliant upon me being an ordained uh member of the church any thoughts on that yeah um well uh, i have a few thoughts so it's kind of gonna go point by point in which i'm gonna present in this sure and I fully agree, but now I think the problem begins in the cancel of Trent rather than recently. And it was not in itself Trent to be blamed, but was a Protestant Reformation. You have this um, need, the Catholic Church doesn't need, doesn't need to use a vernacular language in order for it for the sacraments to be efficacious or the mass to be valid. It doesn't need, just the same way it can be in vernacular. But the matter is that for so long, the Western church kind of has taken away the participation of the people in the chanting, in the liturgy, that you actually led with a bunch of people having devotionals during mass. People were praying rosaries with spiritual book rather than being in the mass in itself. And while both of those things are not bad, they're bad on the moment they're being done. Because that will be kind of like you have the king in front of you, and then you turn around to talk to another noble that's not even nearly as high. So it kind of like more of a liturgical problem that has been going on a while in the Western church is actually quite interesting because let me grab the book really quick. Father Cyril Korolevsky, who was originally a Latin that transcribed then himself to the Melkite church and later ended uh, coming into the Ukrainian church he actually had some interesting uh, opinion to say, and he said, actually, for a long time now, the West has been in inundated by what are called popular devotions, a less desirable effect of which has been to help to put people further out of touch with the church public worship. The liturgy has gradually come to be regarded as a soul of a spiritual for the clergy. And this is a mentality that exists in the West and still exists on the West quite strongly. Um, the low mass, it's part of this to blame as well. But even as of right now, um, people see that the only people participating in the liturgy is the priest, even when they're having responses. Uh, they're looking to the people in the altar are doing all the cool stuff. And then we on the, not on the seats, on the chairs, the rest of the next, next is the church. We're just observers of the Sunday movie theater we're attending and this mentality still exists so it's a little bit more to blame i don't think we can argue that we need to revive a liturgical life in the west because there's nothing to revive it's dead it's you can't even revive the dead because it's been so dead that it's no longer there and vatican ii tried and actually i, I will just make a few cute uh not cute uh Quick points on the matter of the 1969 Misa is that it was actually organically tried to introduce it throughout history, 
The first edition typically is introduced in 1925, then in 1929 through 1955. Uh, uh, prayer ritual books are introduced into French, German, English, and um, Hindi. And then finally, in 1955, the interim missile is introduced. In 1969, the new Roman missile. And that didn't even help. Uh, and because the, the thing that the West has is that the West has an idea, a lack of idea of what the liturgy is. This is strong that even the bishops have no idea what it is. Often, if you hear them speak, it's more of a matter of acting on the altar. And this is why many of them are so strongly against even the Tridentine Mass, because they think it's taking the participation of the people away from pleasing God. And a lot of even the people that then go to the Tridentine Mass think that the ideal Tridentine Mass is the low mass. So you have the same problem in what you will call the progressive modernists or the traditionalists. There is no proper idea of what the liturgical public worship is. Neither side knows it. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's an interesting point, Serge, because even among, amongst um, um, Byzantine um, circles that I'm aware of, you've, you've got an interesting dichotomy or even split between, you know, our the the present liturgical books or you know you have the people who want to conform more to what the orthodox praxis is like currently and then you have i i'm not sure if you're if you've uh heard of it i think i think you i think you have they're the um priestly society of saint josephat <laughs> yeah who are who are the uh, for those who aren't aware they're the um sspx um in the byzantine rite in one diocese in Ukraine, so there's a, a few priests um, had petitioned. I, I I don't I don't know the exact history, but they at some point in the last twenty years they approached um, they approached the SSPX uh, for the granting of faculties. Uh, they've got a small uh, seminary and a few parishes, um, and their liturgical practice, which is interesting, is they actually follow the the pre so uh, the last official promulgation in my in my tradition the ukrainian greek catholic tradition the last promulgation we had of liturgical books was 1944 with the ruthenian recension and basically everything that's sort of been done um, either in ukraine or in the uh, diaspora are basically translations of that so there hasn't been with, with a few with a few exceptions i know in in in, Ca in canada specifically there's been um, our last translation also had omitted parts of the of the uh, recension divine liturgy, specifically the second antiphon. So um, there is, a, but technically that hasn't been abrogated. It's just omitted in our prayer books. Um, but uh, the um, Priestly Society of Saint Josephat actually uses um, previous. I think they use Joka. I might be mistaken. The it, it's the nineteenth uh, century. Uh, liturgical books and it's it's strictly in church slavonic but it's interesting too because they also uh brought back um latinizations which had been abrogated by metropolitan andrei sheptitsky and and subsequent um metropolitans and, and patriarchs of the ukrainian greek catholic church um so it's 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 kind of a strange there's kind of a strange mixture of different of those different liturgical positions at least in my uh ukrainian greek catholic uh community um getting more back to the to the um 
topic of of the of the deaconesses. Um, maybe maybe uh, Serge, you can um, just explain for people briefly your understanding of the liturgical function of them in the Armenian church, because that, I know that when we first connected, that was sort of our our main topic of of dispute was there 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 seems to be an, a tradition today in the Armenian Apostolic Church of ordained or commissioned, however you want to phrase that, ordained women um, having a very active liturgical role, which is parallel to that of a deacon in some respects, in 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 um, vestiture and in certain functions. I'm not going to say identical, but certainly if you see the pictures, you, it's a it's a woman dressed as an Armenian deacon. So maybe maybe you can uh, elucidate us on that a bit. Yeah, uh, so the, the, thank you for leading the discussion back into this clear point and great point. But yes, so there's two points of mention. One, uh, deaconesses within the Armenian church, there's two factions. Uh, there is thus of the, what you will call the mother superior for those of the Western churches that serve as it. And then there's one new and controversial ordination of a young lady that has the ability to get married after. And why I say this is controversial is because Apostolic Constitution Book 3, Section 6 cannot make it be that deaconesses had to be widows many of the times. Um, so this is, was quite controversial in the Armenian church. But it, it existed before. Uh, the reason I see deaconesses is that they serve of, a, of an ordained liturgical methodology aspect of deacons, uh, preaching the gospel, chanting, uh, using the uh, the censor, they do not serve in any of the factions of consecration or involvement with consecration. Let's actually be clear with that. Uh, they mostly act as a hybrid of a Byzantine or even a Tridentine subdeacon with deacon. It's kind of like a transitional position between both of them. Um, and one of the things I actually wanted to argue on the mother is the, on the Orientalium Ecclesiarium from Vatican II, it specifically asks us to return to the ancestral traditions of the Eastern churches to preserve our spiritual heritage of the Eastern churches. When we're talking about the Armenian church is that there has been a few times of reunion, but the most important reunion is that of the 11th century with Patriarch Gregory II, when he made the pilgrimage of, to Rome with Armenians to venerate uh, St. Paul and St. Peter relics. And the Armenians eventually receive a pallion in Rome. And this happens in the 11th century. In the 11th century, we actually see ordinations of deaconesses into the Armenian church. So in the moment of union, there was these traditions that exist that it's fully aware and welcoming to the Armenian Catholic Church because technically they're aspiring to return to the home traditional worship. Uh, the union remains until uh, the 15th century, 1441, when there's a schism between the bishops of Cis and Echmiat Sin. And Cis remains in communion with Rome. And actually I will note it is that the faction of Cis has the lineage of the Armenian continuation of patriarchs from St. Gregory the Illuminator till modern. So actually the Catholic Church has that lineage. So what they serve here is that they serve as a mother of preachers, chanters, acolytes combination. 
it's what an Armenian deaconess serves us. So I think that those three points kind of connects it. Vatican II calls to return to our spirit, uh, to our heritage and our traditions. It is rightfully so, because in the point of union, these heritage and traditions existed among all the Armenian church. The Armenian Catholics have the right and the privilege to return to that. So the matter of pagan and speaking is that at least for the Armenian area, deaconesses are welcome within their aspects of liturgical usage. Okay. If I, yeah, no, and I, I think that even when we are actually looking into the Byzantine churches, we still had uh, hegemena, uh, women, mother superiors, before the fullness of the asceticism, chanting in Hagia Sophia. So it's quite an interesting perspective to argue because in technicality, maybe not of the Slavic recession of Kiev, Moscow, of or the Carpatrusian recession, but at least of what we will consider the Bulgarian, Hungarian, um, Hungarian, and Greek lineages. I will argue that they do have a little bit more of a Constantinopolitan, Byzantine, uh, British hermitage in this matter, and that's a lot of words. <laughs> well, I'll jump in here so you can take your your drink there, uh, Serge. So, <laughs> okay. So I think you you brought up an interesting point, and I'm going to push back a little bit. I don't, and again, this isn't a uh, you know a um, moderated debate. So. Um, you, you mentioned that, yeah, I think I've, I've done the same research and I, I unfortunately didn't bring the notes with me about, um, um, you're right, uh, in the 10th, 11th century, that is where we are seeing uh, what, what you mentioned with the ordination and specifically, at least in the, in the Greek tradition, right, the, the word is herotonia, right, so the laying on of hands with a ritual, like you mentioned, calling down the Holy Spirit upon a woman for this, for this function, right, so. Uh, one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on uh, is that I'm gonna argue that from we see in the um, papal encyclical of um, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. So this is 1756. So it's it's a little bit again it's removed from the period that you're talking about, but I think it makes a really clear point um, to it. So in 1756, um, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth writes ex quo. Now this was, and again, um, you might pick up on this too. So it, this was specifically directed to the Greek church, Greek churches in union with Rome. And it was on the um, correction and updating of the eucologion. Now for those not who don't know, the eucologion is the collection, it, it's, it's, basis, it's basically equivalent to the rituale of the of the latin it's it's the liturgical books but it's also things like the book of needs um any any sort of like liturgical book in a sense is is connected in in what what uh, pope benedict the 16th refers to, oh, sorry pope benedict the 14th refers the 14th, to, yeah yeah refers to as the eucologion and so uh, in the preamble when when um pope benedict the 14th is explaining the need uh, for this encyclical, uh, he's talking about the um, work done by Pope Urban the the Eighth, I believe, um, because there was a petition from the King of Spain. And again, I wish I could get a uh, my a hold on what that text was, 
pardon me um but he was he was appealing to the pope saying that there were unit greeks in his kingdom that were using um and again the the verbiage is sort of like heretical liturgical books and that the pope needed to correct that so the pope pope urban the eighth actually established a congregation of the curia of the roman curia to set about correcting the eucologion from any errors that had entered in and these were specifically saying errors of the schismatics into the eucologion into the greek practice and to conform it to a catholic understanding and so the big things that he talks about um updating um are things like you know um prostrations at the great entrance of the divine liturgy so um and again i don't want to use too much technical language for people and to, to misunderstand but at the it's it's the part of the liturgy where the priest in a procession with the other attending you know uh acolytes and and clergy takes the uh, gifts that are to be mystically transubstantiated into the body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ from the um proscomedia uh altar to the principal altar and one correction that he he made is that he um he made it explicit in the in the liturgical text that that there was that the people were to refrain from prostrations so like pro prostrating to the ground at the at the great entrance and he says that 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 was it's a great sign of devotion that you know these gifts are going to become the body and blood of uh, and soul divinity of jesus christ but that they are not yet and so that there needed to be a correction of that of that practice um and he and he also says well this might be because people are getting confused with the great entrance in a pre-sanctified liturgy right where the 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 gifts are already consecrated so when there's the great entrance it is it is fitting to to prostrate so um and and a, and a few other things another another one of course is the the diptychs the commemoration of the patriarch and the pope in a liturgy as being uh as being necessary as per the unions as per all that sort of thing so there my my main point is to say that even in the hist even in our history of our church and i think and i don't think that this goes against um orient orientalium ecclesiarum at all um is that just because a practice is present in an orthodox church does not mean that it's a um authentic tradition of that church or or something that the catholics can can um approve of and I think, you know, it's the Orthodox could say the same thing about how in some places the Latins have clown masses, have polka masses, have banjo masses, those sorts of those sorts of things. The Orthodox would say just because the Latins are doing it doesn't mean that we think that that's, it's fitting for for our liturgical tradition. So I'm 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 well aware that that's not a, it's not an ironclad kind of mm -hmm. argument, but that is to say that there can exist a um how can we say it the re the return to our authentic traditions as 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 you know because orientalium ecclesiarum is directed to all eastern and oriental catholics not just ukrainian catholic not just armenian i think that that is to you know enter into our our our, our deeper traditions and not things that might might not necessarily be how can i say specifically 
identifiable with our with our traditions. And you know, I'm I'm going to even say for for instance, I think the perfect example of that is so between you know 1596 1700 you know the union the union of western ukraine of the western ukrainian byzantine cap the ruthenian churches is sort of complete by let's say at least by 1700 um, yeah so um it, it um, those but also um i was reading recently um from father robertson uh, i think it's ronald robertson uh he's um he pu he published a uh, series of um, booklets called the survey of the Eastern churches um, by the Pontifical Oriental Institute. And in his 1990, I think that might be his latest, I'm not sure, I, I'd have to look into it. But in the in Robertson's um, 1990 um, survey of the Eastern churches, in his section on the Ukrainian Catholic Church, he notes that the diocese of uh, um, and we would also say the an older pronunciation is Paramishal, Paramishal, Przemyśla in, in Polish, um, and Lviv, they entered in after the Union of Brest. So he he quotes, and again, he doesn't have a citation, so I can't, I haven't been able to dig deep and in, deeper into that. But he quotes uh, the um, the diocese, the eparchy of Lviv entering into the Union by 1700. So. Um, that, that, that's sort of why I brought brought up that that number. So it, we know at least by then, in the traditional lands of of Western Ukraine, we have we have a union established. Um, um, so we know that from at least then to today, we've we've got what like hundreds of years of um of, of development. So one thing i would say is like you know just because you know the orthodox church of the 17 1700s or even the orthodox church of the 1600s was or like let's say russian orthodox practice for for this example just because they were doing something doesn't mean that that's my tradition anymore and i know that that's a bit it's a bit different than in the armenian example right because obviously the 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 churches were were closer together and there was there wasn't the poland russia Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth Austrian Hungary uh, divides of the Armenian church as as such but just because a counterpart is doing a certain liturgical practice doesn't mean that that belongs to us like for instance as as Ukrainian Catholics because I would argue that things like statues things like the rosary are are part of the authentic living tradition of the Ukrainian Greek Catholics um and that you know, in following Orientalium Ecclesiarum, I don't have to, you know, take all the statues out of my house and stop praying my rosary, because I think that we have a doc, we have, and I, I wouldn't even call them Latinized, I would say we've actually organically adopted those liturgical things into our church, and that being true to um, the, the, being true to our Byzantine heritage, you know, I think that more directly applies to liturgical um, changes that were made at the Synod of Zamosh, which were uh, backtracked by um, Sheptitsky, etc., and that we can more thoroughly return to today. So that's that would that would be my my argument in a nutshell. So 
to sort of close close out on that point, um, I wanted to read one quote here from the, this is from the document called the Instruction for Applying the Liturgical uh, uh, Precepts of the Eastern Code. And it's a, it's a document, it's, it's, uh, I would, it's free online. I'd recommend people go read it themselves, um, especially if you're interested in the Eastern Catholic Church in Byzantine liturgy. But in uh, part 66, it, it's, uh, it's entitled The Liturgical Vestments. And I'll just read the quote in, in, in total because I think it's, it's got, got something to say to this. So, uh, quote, putting on a particular vestment to accomplish sacred acts signifies leaving the usual dimensions of daily life to enter the presence of God in the celebration of the divine mysteries with uh, symbolic reference to Paul's teaching for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. The Armenian nurses, and I'm going to get this name really wrong, um, Shnorhali, I'm, I'm honest to goodness, that's how, I, how it looks to me, nurses Shnorhali, Catholicos, from 1165 to 1173 writes, nobody believes that the priestly habit to be useless and lacking mystery. It is a question of external observances of man for those who are to serve of the things of God. We speak also of the interior man for which external worship is the figure of the luminous spiritual ornament, end quote. So, what I think that the the Catholicos there. So again, it's it's coming from that exact same time period that we're we're talking about with reference to the Armenians, their 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 union with uh, receiving the the pallium, etc. You know, there's always this understanding that, like even the vestiture. So for instance, in those the cases of the Armenian deaconesses, the vestiture signifies something, right? And I would I would argue that the the apostolic roots of the deaconesses although having liturgical um reach were not to be like seen as identical ministries to the to the sacraments of holy orders and that this kind of like experiment of let's let's you know give them a vestiture you know in the armenian the, she's got the orar and i don't know and i know that's not the armenian word for it but the the vestment of the of the uh stole vestment of the deacon right and she's got the rapidia the the liturgical fan and the and the and the um censor right all of these things i think kind of relate to what this catholicus is saying is that these things have a have a purpose and a mystery to them so i'm i'm sort of feeling like you know if there's a if there's um experimentation if there's novelty that these things you know might have a there's might be a place in a way to for them to be tested for them to be to dis, to discern if these things are the will of god but for me personally i really i really believe that you know that the sacramental priesthood and the diaconate have a specific like there's there's a specific liturgical mystery to their to their to their ordination to their orders and i'm a little bit wary of the implications for just saying well this is this the, this is all related to our our universal baptism like our universal priesthood I, I think that these lines you know even though it might as as you as you've mentioned you know cause some some people to have like personal um 
difficulties. I, I think that there's a reason that that these have developed this way. And I, I would argue that in the in the case of the um, Armenian apostolic tradition, that, you know, at least in my reading, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm misreading this, it seems like this is a very sort of short-lived kind of thing. And as you say, in the in the in the contemporary circumstance, it's kind of controversial. So my 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 gut feeling about it is that this is this is something of a novelty, and I I don't think it should be entered into authentic praxis. I that's that's just what my gut is telling me on this, Serge. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm actually when you mentioned on the congregation of worship that existed, I will mention first one Eastern methodology commentary by Anatoly Roy Yalu. Is that he was actually comments and argues that the changes that were made were in matter to be not be archaic, but to bring the solemnity of divine worship. This is why the changes were made. So we're focusing on not being archaic, but bringing divine worship to the purest methodology in which it's permitted. And this is actually something from Albania in the Western Albania, from the Western Church. Um, is well, yes, you're speaking in the matter of the Pope having a limitations on some of the what we call errors of the schismatics is that we can also, in the Recola Generale Liturgica, we see the Pope, because of the matter of Easterns, and we're talking about, in this point period, Pope Gregory the fifteen mm-hmm. allows the Albanian Missal to be printed in Albanian, and it was most likely used uh, among the, some of the areas of the Kingdom of Albania. There's some been some discussions if the beginning, the full approval was either given by Paul III or Julius III, but this existed. So you do see that while one Pope is, is not contradicting each other, they were trying to see it how it goes, how in the matter happens, how in the matter of the inclination occurs. The same you actually see on the commentary from Canon AG. Oh gosh, I time to read French. Canon AG, Martimore, in La, La Discipline de l'Eglise, in Materie de Lingua Liturgica e Sa Historica. And I sound so Italian, but written in French on a really bad accent. I promise I can read French, just not speak it. Um, was that uh, the church in itself has always allowed the vernaculars and matter of point of being. In this methodology, it was discussed on trend and kind of forgotten, but the church always looked at the ease on this gift, if you can say it. And then the Russians looked at the West on the idea of ecclesiastical language during the, what we call the Latin captivity of Russia, other people called the Russian Renaissance. So you do see some what I will vaguely call cross-contamination between traditions. So I will argue on the other hand that yes, vestments do represent a matter of liturgical worship in the priesthood. And this is why I think deaconesses wear them is because in the matter they're acting within the foot of the altar on the similar method of how the Mary's acted is that there is some service of giving holding the cross. And this is not something extravagant that's been happening. 
we see actually Armenians throughout history, especially in the new Jufa region, and even near the river of Saidej, you actually see it throughout history. You, you see it in monasteries, you see it in churches. The reason why it was stopped being used actually was due to the 1815 genocide. No, 1950, sorry, genocide. Uh, that they were struggling liturgically to keep up so they kind of reverted a little bit more to not having them. But even in Jerevan in 1964, you in 1928, you still see some girls' ordinations to be deaconesses. So it's not been something discontinued. It still existed. And they still kind of, on the matter of their acolyte lecture service, which is what they do, they do serve a liturgical purpose. Um, like what the Marys did under the cross. If we are going to be looking at the church, uh, well, it's liturgically speaking on this matter, the reality is the liturgy is a representation, both as an archetype, as a symbol, and as in reality of the sacrifice of the cross every single liturgy. It serves those three points all the time. It's that we cannot forget that, especially our Blessed Mother was always at the foot of the cross. In this archetype, a woman can serve as a servitude to the priest, who is the Vicarius Christi, or at least represented of his bishop in this method, um, persona in Christi. Oh, I think I lost you there, Serge. I'm just going to wait here for, for Serge to... Ah, there we go. So it's not, it doesn't take it away from the liturgical observation of veneration. It actually do adds a little bit more of a, well, not contemporary, at least for the Armenians, because it's been gone for a while. That's an archetype of Marian spirituality to the liturgy in itself. Now, I think I will make a clear distinction. No Armenians really are arguing for female priests. Latins are. So when the archetype of representation is cultural so it is a major effect and i know my argument can fall apart in minutes in the west if misconstructed or misunderstood by somebody of uh, progressive ideology but eastern speaking on the context of armenians the argument of the archetype of mary as a kind of mary in christi no sorry persona in mary to actually make uh similar arguments do exist on the Armenian liturgy itself in the servitude and it serves on this matter. So I think those are the points. We have seen it uh, even by the congregation of Rome. We have seen them actually allow Eastern and even methodology of thinking through vernacular languages in both Dalmatia, Albania, we have seen it. And we also have seen the Armenian churches has kept these traditions throughout history. What I think the Pope is speaking, it's a matter of correction that probably something the Greeks adopted later on, and this is completely fair. But this is not something the Armenians adopt later after uh, any breaking in communion. This is something they adopt during communion and meanwhile in communion. So it will be quite an argument to say that something was liturgical heteropraxis on the 11th century, and and then arguing against it is orthopraxis because it's kind of then arguing on a 
historicism frame of blaming the past as wrong and liturgical speaking usually we do look at the past as our grounds for formation of building the churches uh, because liturgically speaking we don't start from the roof to the foundation of the house we start from the foundation to the roof of the house so i do quite think that the argument you write up just doesn't work because we will have to present it that once it applies to the armenians that the armenian deaconesses are removing uh, any liturgical matter of proper worship from the liturgy and one that, that it was introduced in the past in error i don't think we can actually argue to a, a degree of conven of convincing a historical liturgical perspective either of those points maybe we can argue to a point that is not longer necessary but at the same time we could argue that an iconostasis is no longer necessary it's more of an archetype but that doesn't mean it's not very useful so that's where i'm coming from like and, and now again my argument is taking roots on the allowance of one of the eastern churches while i recognize that my argument does not work in the same strength in the west but i am saying that if such a thing exists on the east it could exist in the west with the proper cultural anthropological formation given it in an organic methodology of growth not overnight but maybe over hundreds of years okay you know fair, fair enough serge and i think i think you you offered a, uh, i think you offered a, a very a very um uh, cogent response. You know, I think maybe to, to clarify, um, my, my position a bit, a bit more, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, denigrating, um, right. Uh, a historical practice practice as being, you know, not, not worthy of, of consideration or whatever, because it's historical. Uh, I, I just think that, I think my, my position is more from a, how can you say it? Uh, a hyper purism with, with regards to, um, with, with regards to, uh, sac sacramental in, in integralism that I think that's probably a better way to, to point my position because I, I, I think you made, I think you made some very, um, some very good, good points and some very good, uh, counter points to, to what, what I was saying, but, I, I think sort of my my uh, response to that would be f fair enough. I think you know looking at is something is something you know Marian in in nature. That I think that's probably a better conversation to to have on this topic. I don't think I'll, I don't think I've heard a lot of people um, mention the Marian archetype as being the 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 prototype for this kind of um, sacramental or liturgical ministry rather. But I think that that a great deal of caution in terms of implementation and i think i think you've you've already you've already said that that it's it's not something to be done overnight so you've you this is something that you've granted in your argument as well but for me i'm very very apprehensive to 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 integrate any kind of praxis that is is sort of already going to damage a weakened a weakened state of priestly 
and liturgical understanding in the church right now. That that's again, and that that's a very historically um, sort of based argument. Like I'm talking about like right now, like this would be a bad idea right now. And you've already, you've already um, spoken, spoken to that point. But I think maybe if I, if I already haven't um, stated the point um, uh, sufficiently, I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm, I'm fallible. I'm not a, a scholar. Um, you've obviously done a lot more reading on some of these topics than, than I have, but I think too that uh, uh, a liturgical, a liturg, I think a grounding in the liturgical theology of the comp the complementarity and differences of of male and female of our basic nature our our difference the, the the differences that we have from from Almighty God and the sort of um, kenosis that already that kind of exists in the liturgical act you know that it it really for me that just it's it needs to be safeguarded against abuse that that's just that's a personal feeling but i think that how can i say i i think i think in some cases i i also have you know reservations about um what pope francis has has done in this liturgical in this um modo proprio i know we've already mentioned that it, it basically is normalizing something that's already a general practice in in the west but for me i almost i almost liked it better as an extraordinary kind of practice rather than being on the books so to speak so I think we're kind of coming up to the end uh, here. Um, if you want to have any kind of uh, closing remarks, because you're the guest, Serge, I offer you the floor to you, and then we'll we'll um, uh, we'll close out after that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I do have a really close remarks, and is that my argument works from an Eastern perspective towards a Western perspective. The methodology of which I'm implying does not adequate that I am welcoming the existence of female altar service, it bothers that, forgive me, hell out of me, when I actually see it happen, because most of them have a horrible idea how to carry themselves on the altar. I mean, to begin with, please don't wear high heels when you're altar serving. I have seen it too many times, and it's just cringy. You're going to fall. You're going to spill the body. Like, don't get me started. But now, I actually think that if it was properly introduced, the methodology of the argument exists to be allowed. The argument exists to be allowed. So I don't think it's illicit. I don't think it's valid. I think it's illicit, it's valid. That's as far as I go. Should it exist under meaning Catholic Church? I have no problem because we have the culture of understanding of what it means because they're actually Armenians. They're more closer to the Armenian Orthodox. They actually have good communication. This whole schema works. So it's in the Western church. If we have learned something from the Western church is that they should probably not try too much liturgical change. Um, that's fair. So that, that, that's where I'm coming from. So I think a little bit of people were harsh on Pope Francis, calling him a heretic. A few trads left Catholicism for Orthodoxy. I even saw that. Mm. Uh, so I just think it's not invalid. It's not illicit. It's a stupid move. And it's not been organically done. It's, well, I do argue that in some form, the new Roman Missal was organic. I, it's 
not really because it all happens within a period of 80 years. It wasn't overnight, as a lot of threats argue, but it's still a short period. Still nothing alike from the edition typical of the 1925 to the 1969 Missile. It is not that many years compared to liturgical development on the West, on the East, sorry. So is there a middle point? Definitely. I do think that in due eventuality, we are going to be seeing more of the, what existed in some areas such as Armenia, Georgia, uh, Albania, Croatia, is that it could possible that the classical vernacular becomes a vernacular of a Tridentine-like mass on the West. When will this happen? Maybe my grandkids get to see it if they're lucky. Um, it's kind of a, a point to make. Right. Okay. So the Pope is not a heretic, not doing something illicit or invalid, really short. It's valid illicit comes from Armenian tradition, which I believe has its root and its nation in both um, the Marian archetype and it's allowed by canon law of apostolic times, but it shall not be done on the West. All right, fair enough. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today, Serge. Um, uh, where can people uh, learn more about you and your work and uh, connect with you online there? Oh gosh, that's a great question, dude. So my instant Instagram handle is Theosis Plus, plus so T-H-E-O-S-I-S-P-L-U-S. -S and my Twitter handle, which you're going to see a lot of jokes there, by the way, making fun of Jesuits and Dominicans too, it's Sergei Golif. And no, I'm not Polish. Don't ask that. Literally have the Mexican flag in it, so... <laughs> There you, go. you can always find me both of them, or you can find me on my on my blog theosisplus.wixsite.com, and I will be uploading some nice documents on the vernacular, the papacy, and Neoplatonic theology and philosophy within the aspects of Byzantine and Alexandrian worlds. Great. Well, thank you so much again, and um, for our listeners and viewers, if you want to support us here over at the Byzantine Life, you can head over to thebyzantinelife.com. Um, as they say, please excuse the mess. We had a tricky um, switch over between uh, hosting sites. And so there was some data lost. And <laughs> honestly, between all the other things going on in my in, in our lives right now, it's kind of hard to, to go in and do the deep, deep clean that needs to happen on on some of those some of those files. So if you see that there are some some photos missing and things like that, just kind of please, <laughs> please uh, uh, bear with us as, as we get that corrected. And you can also uh, head up over to patreon.com to support us at the Byzantine life. Um, we're on we're actually on Spurn now. I don't know if you've heard of Spurn, um, Saturday, but it's the Catholic uh, social media site where you have to ratify uh, your um, baptismal promises as part of the terms of service to to, to get a to get a, um, a profile on there. So <laughs> I see you, you don't seem very impressed. I thought I'm, I'm just not I'm just not impressed because I'm not being impressed on things like Catholic match and that right, I there. tend to learn that a lot a lot of Catholics on social media. Should not be allowed in social media. There you go. Fair. I found Spurn to be to be fairly docile. It's a it's a small social media platform, but anyway. So uh, you can find the Byzantine Life on on Spurn. There, um, we're also up on Parlor, still uh, Twitter, uh, YouTube here, uh, and Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, all those different places where you can go and support us. And um, speaking of the Marian archetype, um, uh, we will uh, close off here with uh, a Hail Mary. 
So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios, ruega, Señora, por nosotros los pecadores, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christ is risen. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to that uh, anniversary episode number 10 of The Orthodox Show. And I wanted to thank again, Serge, uh, my guest for coming on uh, from the Theosis Plus blog and Instagram channels there. Um, I wanted to do a little uh, wrap up, post show wrap up here, in case the position of the, the Byzantine life didn't come across uh, clearly or succinctly in my presentation today. So I wanted to just um, conclude by saying that uh, at the Byzantine life, we believe that the all male priesthood has been divinely instituted by our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ as part of the divine economy for the salvation of souls. And that men and women have different vocations um, varied by their calling uh, in, in life and that these different ministries and charisms in the church aren't opposed to each other but they're collaborative and they're synergetic for the building up of the body of Christ and for the apostolate to the world. So. Um, uh, regarding the uh, tr the tradition of um, Armenian deaconesses that um, Serge and I were discussing, I also just wanted to make it clear that um, I think still based on my understanding of church history and the history specifically of re reunions of uh, Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox uh, jurisdictions with the Catholic Church, that there are things that uh, have arisen uh, during the times of separation that are not uh, cohesive with uh, the fullness of the uh, teachings of the magisterium and that there are certain practices that do need to be um, tempered or changed or abrogated in order for our different communions to come into full communion. So that's that's sort of um, my position. I think my understanding is that um, the Armenian Catholic Church does not um, currently um, have the same tradition of ordaining women to a deaconess role with a liturgical ministry. And, you know, that's not to say that even like in the um, Chaldean or Assyrian Catholic Church, there aren't similar roles, but these we can clearly see are not um, liturgical in the same way that the subdeacon or deacon's roles are liturgical, but they're more um, musical. There are some who do uh, have a reading of the epistle as well in those traditions and so there are there are definitely certain aspects of of a ministry like that that could be reconciled with catholic understanding but that there is still a a divide that exists there so i wanted to uh again thank serge for his eloquent presentation and even where we disagree i think it's always great that we're able to come together and have and have honest and life-giving discussions with each other that's something that seems to be really missing on uh catholic social media and so i wanted to thank you all for tuning in and god bless you please keep uh supporting us at the byzantinelife.com